2: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is our new recruit, Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you with us. We've also got Chris KP, who's um, an old recruit. Hello, hello. But still somewhat fresh. Hello, thank you. You reckon? Do- <laughs> Do- I'm, I'm next <laughs> him. i fresh. Yeah, little... fresh to me. Oh, dear. We'll, <laughs> I'm surrounded. We're we'll hosing we'll down during the break. And Dr. Jen. <laughs>
3: good morning, Dr. Good to, Shane. Good to
2: see you. Now uh, hopefully on the line we're going to be speaking to Brian Green. For those of you who uh, do not know Brian, he's, um, he's a bit of a celebrity these days. Did his undergraduate at Harvard University and his doctorate at Oxford and is now a professor of physics at Columbia University in the United States and a, a proponent of string theory so we're going to see if we've got him on the line and have a chat team Brian can you hear us I sure can how are you good welcome to Australia um you. now you're doing a bit of a tour you're going to be down in Melbourne uh next week I believe which uh sounds great yes you, that's right you're talking about string theory give our audience a bit of a, a quick rundown on this because um we've just gotten over the whole gravitational wave thing and Einstein going good but you're, you're looking for something bigger and better
0: yeah, we've been trying to go beyond Einstein and take his ideas about how gravity works. That's what his famous general theory of relativity is all about. And we're trying to include the effects of quantum physics, the weirdness of the quantum realm. We wanted to talk to the ideas that Einstein articulated a hundred years ago
2: but in, in terms of the 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 name string theory I mean what what does that refer to what are we talking about here in terms of the sort of basic concepts of of this new new program
0: Well, for 50, 60 years, we've known that Einstein's ideas and those of quantum mechanics don't meld. They're ferocious antagonists. When you try to take the laws of the big things, general relativity, and the laws of the small things, quantum physics, as I mentioned, they just don't blend together. But we found with this new idea of string theory that we can get at least the equations to work. And the string in string theory is the idea that the basic constituents of matter are not little dot particles, as we all learn in school. But if you look deeply inside any particle, there's a little vibrating filament, a little vibrating piece of string. And the different notes that the strings can play, if you will, the different vibrations, are the different kinds of particles that make up the world.
2: And so, so mathematically, when you go through that process, are you actually able to sort of come to every particle, every photon, every you know, constituent bit of particle physics that we've, we've seen so far? Does it all pan out from the mathematics?
0: Well, one way of answering that question, the most optimistic, is to say, yes, we can, in principle, account for every particle via these vibrations of strings. The trouble is, we don't uniquely get the particular particles that we see in the world around us. We get all sorts of other possibilities, too. And that's where we're currently focusing all of our effort to try to see if we can understand the theory better and find that it might actually more directly describe the things that we see as opposed to the range of possibilities allowed by the math
2: Mm. that's interesting so we've taken some hundred years to you know essentially prove some of the gravitational aspects of of einstein's theory of general relativity When, when do you think we'll have anything that sort of indicates parts of string theory are actually true because as far as i i'm aware we haven't actually shown anything of the theory yet in reality is that right
0: well, the interesting thing about the future is that it's very hard to predict, right? I mean, if I had a crystal ball, which I could tell you when we'd be able to have flying cars or hoverboards or the proof of string theory, I'd be a pretty rich guy right now. So what we do in science is we work at the forefront, and we put all of our effort in trying to link the math to things that we can observe, and then we build big machines like the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, and we press forward. You know. When When will we actually know if these ideas are right or wrong
2: who can say Mm. it's it's interesting stuff is is part of this our, our human need to seek and find patterns i mean is it the expectation you have that what we see in the universe should be um explained in a fairly simple nice symmetrical beautiful uh series of uh theoretical predictions or or are we just putting our own sort of human pattern recognition prejudice in front of things there
0: I mean, I think that's the key question, and nobody really knows the answer. We like to think that what we're doing is revealing the deep laws of the universe, or as Einstein put it, we like to think that we are trying to know the thoughts of God, right? I mean, the deep about how the world works. But you're right. Everything that we glean about the world is processed through this gloppy gray thing inside of our heads. And it could be our brains are imposing a certain order on our perceptions that's far more human in nature as opposed to giving us some deep truth about how the world works. Mm. Uh, the problem is it's very hard to step outside of your head. <laughs> everything we do, everything we think, everything that we discuss always is processed through our brains. And it could be that our brains are imprinting certain features on the world and that's really what we're analyzing as opposed to some objective description of how things are working out there in the universe
2: certainly makes it harder to do brian tell us a little bit about your um your programs here while you're in australia you're you're coming down to melbourne park on march 19th what will audiences be hearing from you during these shows
0: well we're be talking about these kinds of ideas, how the world works in the quantum realm, the weirdness of the probabilities and quantum tunneling and spooky action at a distance, quantum entanglement that Einstein hated, but experiments have seen in a way that's completely convincing. And then we'll go on to talk about the origins of the universe and the far future of the universe and trying to find the deep laws of nature. So it's really a, a wild ride through all of our deep understanding that we have extracted from our mathematics and our observations during the last 100 years.
2: Now, when most people hear the term string theory or quantum physics, um, I'm a physicist so I get excited, but most people run for the hills. Is, is this the sort of program where you're going to take people through a level of detail that you know helps them understand more about what's going on but in a way that's accessible
0: yeah you don't need to have any background at all in these ideas to follow the discussion that we're going to have it's really meant for a general person who has curiosity about where we come from and where we're going and why there is a universe at all these questions are part of our human nature they're part of the human spirit and what we're going to do is explore those kind of questions but from a particular perspective what we've learn from our math and from our studies of physics but you don't need to know that math to understand the ideas you just have to trust that we're doing our math correctly and then we'll start with air and go flying
2: mm. brian uh, i hope you have a good time in australia we'll be seeing you down here in melbourne park uh, relatively soon in in just a few days um are you doing anything else while you're out here or is it just the shows
0: uh, well, we just had the World Science Festival in Brisbane for the last five days, five intense days where right. people have come and immersed themselves in science. And, yes, then I'm going on this tour to Melbourne. I'm also going to Sydney, and I'm to going to Perth as well. So it's a whirlwind tour of Australia.
2: Brian, have a great time, and thanks for speaking with us today on Triple R.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: That was Brian Green, an uh, international uh, physicist and uh, promoter of science and communication of science. at work. We should just clarify something. Brian Greene um, did quote uh, Einstein referring to God. Einstein was a very strong atheist. He often <laughs> used God funny. in a joking sense, blah blah blah. But uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, Brian, wrong there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't <laughs> like to clarify. correct the master, but you know, you know. If God is uh, listening
4: to this program, we're in real trouble now.
2: <laughs> strike me down. No, see, didn't <laughs> happen. There you go. Okay. Um, anyway, moving on. It's uh, a <laughs> it's a religious hour. No. Uh, <laughs> You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go now. Um, We were very lucky during the week. Uh, because we managed to interview uh, David Suzuki and I had the pleasure of um, basically loitering around a hotel foyer earlier in the week. And rubbing it in. And just uh, (laughs) rubbing it into Dr. Ewan and Dr. Jen. Yeah, we got photos. Uh, You saw photos of me just snuggling up with uh, David (laughs) and um, we had a great discussion and look, the audio uh, is is consistent with a hotel foyer I will say, Um, but we've got this interview for you now which I'm going to play. It goes for uh, about 20 minutes or so. It's um, it's a great discussion, though, with uh, what is what has been a man who's just uh, devoted his life to um, some great causes, and uh, we hope that you enjoy that. So I'm going to attempt to uh, master the technology now and play that interview. Enjoy. This is our interview from earlier in the week with David Suzuki, Dr. David Suzuki, many doctorates. Anyway, mm. we'll talk about that. Here we go. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane and my guest today is Dr. David Suzuki, award-winning international broadcaster, science communicator and geneticist. David's work has led him to being awarded over 28 honorary doctorates from universities in the United States, Canada and Australia. David, thank you so much for making time
1: to speak to us today. My pleasure. Always glad to be back in Australia.
2: Now, I'd like to start with your new book, Letters to My Grandchildren. I've been reading this over the weekend. It's a fascinating group of stories that you've put together Together from your past what led you to bring this together it, it,
1: the intro is almost a bit morbid in a sense well people find it morbid when I say that I'm in the death zone I'm at an age now where people are dropping right and left I'm going to be 80 in two weeks and uh, I don't think there's anything morbid about it at all if you're not at my age thinking about death then uh, uh, there's something the matter with you. I mean, that's a reality. And for me, I find this is the most important time in my life because I'm beyond worrying about getting a job or a promotion or a raise. I don't have to play games in order to to run after more fame or, or money or power or even sex. So I have a credibility now that I don't have a vested interest in or stake in in any uh, uh, group or or uh, political party or, or or company, and I can speak the truth from my heart. And as an elder. I think we elders have something no other group in society has. We've lived an entire life. And so, you know, every one of us has made mistakes, we've suffered failures, celebrated successes. Those are hard-won life lessons. And those are well worth thinking about To pass on to the coming generation. I mean, we've learned a lot. And that's what happens in indigenous communities around the world. Your elders have had all this experience. And then it's their job to protect that experience and pass it on to coming generations. So that's where I'm at. Now we've
2: seen um, some changes in our lives. You've seen some incredible ones during this almost 80-year period, uh, doubling of the world's population or tripling of the world's population. I mean, how are we going? Are we are we really so close to the edge as everyone seems to think at the
1: moment, or are you got more optimism? A man I have a great deal of respect for is one of your compatriots, uh, Clive uh, Clive Hamilton, who's an eco philosopher, and he wrote a book called Requiem for a Species. Now I've read it from cover to cover. There's nothing in it I disagree with, and basically, when you look at the history he traces, we're we're in a pretty bad space, and uh, it's not just Clive. I mean, the requiem or the species it's a requiem for is us. And he's basically saying it's too late. Now, it's not just Clive. um, uh, The eminent uh, um, Sir Martin Rees, uh, the royal astronomer from England, was asked on BBC, what are the chances our species will make it to the end of this century And his answer was 50-50. So there are a lot of scientists now that are saying we've passed too many tipping points. I tell people, I tell other elders, think back on the world you knew when you were a child. And then ask, will your grandchildren be able to enjoy the same things we did? And of course the answer is not a prayer. So then we know that we're using up what our children had a rightful expectation to experience. We're using it up, all in the name of economic progress. Well, that, I don't think, is a very responsible uh, attitude. We're in deep trouble now, and uh, scientists have been saying this for years. You know, it was in Australia... I knew what global warming was back in the 70s. I really never thought very much about it till I came to Australia in 1988. Up until then I kept calling global warming a slow-motion catastrophe. I thought, oh we got decades to worry about this. I came to... Uh, the uh, Australia had just set up a new group called the Commission for the Future, which was in Melbourne. And I came here and they showed me the Information on climate and it was the commission for the future that got me thinking oh my god we don't have time this is serious we've got to do something but what have we done the science was in in 1988 and look at us Canada has just emerged from 10 years of climate denial in our government. You've gone from Abbott to Turnbull. I'm not convinced that's much of a change, except Turnbull has said, yes, climate change is real. But when you think of the years that have gone by, when scientists have been saying, we've got to take action, and instead we've been fighting for decades to say, the science is good, it's real, it's not junk science, you know, like... What's going on? It's, it's a very uh, depressing time. Wow. Have I given up hope? Absolutely not. And what I say to Clive and, uh, and others like him, I say, look, you're right, we've got to warn people, the problems are real and urgent. I appreciate that. But for heaven's sakes, don't say it's too late. If you say it's too late, people give up. You know, we, we've got to say, we don't know enough to say it's too late. But it's urgent that we act now. David just a quote from your book momentarily you
2: say I've long maintained that one of our species unique attributes is foresight the ability to use our acquired knowledge and experience to look ahead anticipate opportunities and hazards and then deliberately choose a path to minimize danger and maximize benefits have we completely forgot this attribute it seems exactly what you're talking about and we've just left it out and we've forgotten our kids and our grandchildren and all the other species on the earth I mean
1: what's going on there You have asked the absolutely critical question. That statement, to me, sums up what is special about our species. The ability, the capacity to remember and learn from experience. Look ahead and say, where does that get us if we carry on in the same way? And then deliberately choose a path that will avoid the dangers and exploit the opportunities. And I'm not a Christian, but if you look in the Bible, you know what was the, you know, Joseph and his his siblings uh his his siblings were all jealous and they sold him to the Egyptians. But look at what he did. He had an ability to read dreams. And he said to the Pharaoh, "We're in for tough times. Tell your farmers to save grain." And they did, and they got through seven years of of drought. And in the same way, Noah, you know, Noah's his carpenter, and suddenly the voice says, build an ark and all that stuff. And all his neighbors laughed at him, but he built the ark. And sure enough, the rains came, and, and they were saved. And I think those parables are stories about the importance of foresight, to look ahead and now you know the problem is that politically our politicians have a vision that only goes from one election to the next they can't look any further than that so any politician in Australia whatever he he says has got to pay off before the next election. And here, that's three years. In Canada, it's four. So they have no vision that looks ahead to your children or my grandchildren. They're looking just from election to election. And of course, the economic imperative is driven by the quarterly report. Every three months, corporations live or die on the quarterly report. So what the hell? Where do you put something that takes 10, 15, 30 years to deal with, it's not on the agenda for for corporations. And so there's active fighting against the idea that we've got to do something like against climate change when, you know, our politicians know we're going to have to invest billions and billions of dollars every year and maybe in 15, 20, 30 years it'll pay off. What politician is going to do that? They're not going to be around then. So we've got a real problem of uh, time factors being out of sync with our, the institutions we create, corporations and politics.
2: Now, one of the things I find fascinating, and it's interesting you use the biblical references, of course, I'd say we probably have a lot more data than they had when they were making their predictions. But it seems as though society, and I include politicians loosely in that grouping, uh, you know believe us on how a 747 works they believe us on gravity they believe us on the fact that their mobile phone is connected but when we come to climate there seems to be this unnatural skepticism for the science and now we're in a state where the scientific process itself of falsification is being attacked what do we need to do to
1: get past that because this seems really entrenched at this point no you're absolutely right and i think uh, that we can't go on fighting. I've been involved in fighting on environmental issues ever since Rachel Carson published Silent Spring in 1962. And what we celebrated in the past as successes, we stopped dams, we stopped proposals to drill for oil in, in uh, delicate areas, we uh, stopped clear-cutting of forests, we stopped a lot of things and celebrated, but guess what? 30, 35 years later, we're fighting exactly the same battles again. So They were temporary victories that really didn't deal with the way we look at the world, the real challenge of environmentalism is get people to understand that we 're deeply embedded in the natural world and dependent on it for our survival. So what I say now, and I was asked by the CEO of a, one of the biggest oil companies in canada 's tar sands, I was asked to, to to meet with him and discuss the future of fossil fuels. when he came to my door, I said look i 'm honored to meet you, thank you for coming, but before you come in the door to my office, please leave your identity as a CEO." of an oil company outside I want to meet you man-to-man and I want to deal with what do we agree what do we agree are the fundamental things that all human beings have then we'll negotiate how we deal with companies and he wasn't very happy he came in and I said look I know this is difficult but we live in a world that is shaped and constrained by laws of nature in physics, you know you can't build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. We know that the laws of gravity say you can't have an anti-gravity machine here on Earth. We know the first and second laws of thermodynamics mean you cannot build a perpetual motion machine. Those We understand, and your listeners all understand that. That's dictated by the laws of physics. Chemistry, it's the same. The atomic properties of, of the elements, uh, diffusion constants, reaction rates, all tell you what kinds of chemicals reactions uh, you can carry out and what kind of molecules you can synthesize we understand that it's set by chemistry biology it's the same biology says every species uh, has a maximum number that can be sustained by the carrying capacity of ecosystems exceed that number your population will crash humans aren't constrained by ecosystems we live within the biosphere but the biosphere is finite and we know that the amount of hum- the number, we're the most numerous mammal on the planet, but we have a huge uh, uh, ecological footprint because we use a lot of stuff. Consumption and population have made us a very, very destructive animal. And there are limits. We know we're past the carrying capacity of human beings. So there are far too many of us, and we're surviving by using up the rightful legacy of our children. And then, Think of this. I said to this CEO, what do you think is the most important thing every human being on earth needs? And I could see he was going, money, a job, profit. I said, look, if you don't have air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe contaminated air, you're sick. So surely you as a CEO of a company would agree with me. Clean air is the highest priority every human population has. And then I said, you and I are 60 to 70% water. Our bodies leak water. If you don't have water for four to six days, you're dead. Drink contaminated water, you're sick. Can we put clean water there? And then I said, Food, you know, most of our food comes from the soil. If you don't have food for four to six weeks, you die. Polluted food, and we're sick. So can we put food and, and soil up there? I said, Those should be the foundation of how every society lives. Protecting air, water, soil should be our highest priority. Then we ask, How do we make a living? How do you set up an economy? You know what? He wouldn't shake hands with me on that. I wanted him to shake hands and agree with me. He couldn't because in a way it was unfair. He had come to negotiate as a CEO of a company. If he went back to his company and said, you know, I talked to Suzuki and I have to agree. Whatever we do, we can't screw up the air, the water, the soil. He'd get fired in a flash. That's not what corporations do. And that's not the the constraint that limits the the way they operate their job is to make money that's it protecting the earth protecting a future is not on the agenda so so long as we continue to be constrained in our conversation by economics we're going to trash the planet
2: you're listening to 3 triple r this is dr shane on einsteiner go go and we're playing for you at the moment our interview with dr david suzuki from earlier in the week enjoy Now David, one of the uh, quotes I I loved in your book was um, in a sense almost a call to arms I think for a new type of environmentalist and you say environmentalism is not a specialty or a discipline like medicine or teaching or law it's a way of seeing the world and recognizing that we are part of the biosphere dependent on nature water soil photosynthesis biodiversity for our health and well-being and we need everyone to see the world through this lens this sounds like a transformation is required in our education system to get to this because we're we're so far from that
1: thinking at the moment no you're absolutely right and I think if you go around the world every traditional or indigenous culture has that understanding it's only very very recently that we've separated ourselves from the natural world and and feel that we're somehow not only outside it but above it that the rest of creation is there for us to use as we wish and many people blame the Bible for a lot of this you know from Genesis go forth and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and people say well that God gave us the planet for us to use it in any way now of course this is insanity this is why I'm very ex- I find it very exciting that the environmental movement now is being driven in Canada and increasingly around the world by indigenous perspectives so indigenous people who still retain that connection with the land and i am sure the aboriginal people in australia exactly the same because they have roots in place that go back thousands of years and they know what it is to protect the things that keep them alive so that indigenous people in canada are driving the political agenda of environmentalists saying no 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 we we can't abandon our sense of connection to the land that's got to be the focus and the way that we do things in the future but it's a big change it's we've got to bring it into the educational system education in Canada has been very effective at the elementary level and getting children environmentally aware you know they don't like to uh, waste they turn out the lights when they go out and they they turn off the tap when they're brushing their teeth and they're doing a lot of those things but we really still need that shift that says, thank you, Mother Nature, for giving us the things that keep us alive and healthy. That's the big change.
2: You spoke about um, Indigenous um, communities. Is, is the value there in that so much of the knowledge is passed down? I mean, you, you talked about elders before, you consider yourself an elder, and in many cases in our society at the moment, information is not passed on of what the world was. But it seems that in Indigenous communities, and some of them have been quite destructive in some areas of land, but they've passed that knowledge and value of knowledge on so that it doesn't happen again. Is, is that the value that we're looking for in our society more broadly?
1: absolutely uh i think that uh, you've nailed it on uh, right on if you go into an aboriginal community that may have enormous problems of violence and alcohol and obesity and all that stuff you'll still find that your elders are like rock stars they are so highly valued now i look at it from the perspective of of our evolution Human beings appeared on the planet about 150,000 years ago in Africa. And when you uh, look at that was our birthplace, that was where we belonged. Now, for some reason humans began to move off the plains of africa into new areas we don't know why maybe it was population pressure running out of resources i'm convinced it was young males that wanted to get laid with the neanderthal ladies on the other side of the mountain we know they bred with neanderthals anyway whatever it was we began to move wherever we moved we were an invasive species we didn't know how the ecosystems worked and we came to new areas, and wow, those giant sloths they don't move very fast, and they're really dumb. We can kill them. And we you can follow the movement of humans across the planet by a wave of extinction that accompanied us. So it's amazing that even armed with very simple tools like stone axes and spears and digging sticks, we were a very effective predator on the planet. And as we spread, at some point they must have said, God, those birds have disappeared, or those plants, there, there aren't many left. And so suddenly they they find we've overexploited our, our surroundings. So you have two choices. You move, or you say, look, we've got to act in a different way. And I believe that it's the people that stayed in place that accumulated knowledge from the failures, the successes, the mistakes. All of that was learning lessons passed on through oral traditions and over thousands of years that became the body of knowledge every indigenous people needed to survive in a sustainable way. We've come in very very recently now and imposed this kind of economic paradigm on the system. You know, we people didn't have economies in the way that we have now where you can invest in money, buy money, wait for it to rise or change and then sell money and make more money. This is a crazy, bloody system. I don't know how the Australian dollar is. Right now, the Canadian dollar has fallen through the floor. Buy Canadian dollars, wait a while, and guess what? It'll go up a few cents. You can sell it and make money like you haven't done a goddamn thing for the planet, but you've made money. This is a crazy system we've invented, and we've allowed that to take control over our lives. Part of the reason, I think, is... There's been this massive shift in a 100 years in the way we live. We now, the vast majority of us, live in big cities. I have a friend in the north side of Toronto, biggest city in Canada, who lives in an air-conditioned apartment. He says, you know, I go down the elevator in the morning, get into my air-conditioned car, drive down the the freeway into the basement of an air conditioned corporation that big building is connected through tunnels to huge shopping areas he said David I don't have to go outside for weeks well when you live in that kind of a world it's very easy to think who needs nature my my job is important I need the money to buy the things I want so that really has cut us off from the natural world and so we've got to to reestablish that Connection, I forgot what your question was.
2: (laughs) No, you definitely covered it. The uh, you're in Australia at the moment. We're here in Melbourne. We're about to hit a week that will again break a number of records. We're in March. It's it's looking to be in the 30 degree range for the entire week, which uh, you know, no people are excited about that. We normally get crappy weather, but but it is it is concerning, and Australia is probably going to be one of the countries most severely affected by the changes in climate. If there was some advice you would give to us right now as to things we need to do what would they be
1: well I think the most important thing is that we've got to accept the the depth of the crisis it we're in a crisis situation with for sure many of my colleagues are saying it's too late I say we don't we can't say it's too late because we don't know enough but we have to seize this and as the Chinese uh, depict the symbol for crisis is in two parts. One part is danger, the other part is opportunity. Once you seize the crisis, the reality of the danger, then enormous opportunities come. Why the hell is Australia using any fossil fuels when you've got something Canadians would kill for called sunlight? And, you know, I've been saying in Canada, when you fly over a forest and look down over it, what do you see? Every green thing is looking up to the sky saying, give me more, give me more, whether it's water or sunshine. You fly over a city, and what do you see? All flat surfaces, roofs of buildings, streets, sidewalks. We've got to imitate a forest. From the clothing we wear to the sidewalks, the roads, the building tops, those should all be receptacles for water and for sunlight. And then guess what? Australia has got more than any other industrialized country. Why isn't Australia seizing the economic benefits of being the country that to develop uh, solar energy? You know, we just heard an announcement from France last week that France is going to build a thousand kilometers of highway built with a road um, substance that they've invented in science labs that are durable enough for cars traffic on it and their solar panels. One thousand kilometers of that road will provide energy for five million homes. This is imitating a forest. This is what we've got to do. Our vehicles should all be covered with solar panels. Our clothing should be covered. You know, we just gotta take the benefits of the sun. And are we not smart enough to do what trees do all the time? That's what we've gotta do. But seize the moment. And I like to tell the story that I was in my last year of college in the United States in 1957. October 4th, 1957, you're a scientist. Do you know what happened then? Uh, Well, that was the start of the real space program. Exactly. Sputnik. Mm. And the Americans. They, I didn't even know there was a space program. The Americans immediately tried to launch their... Everyone blew up on the launch pad. Meanwhile, the Russians launched the first animal, a dog, Laika, the first man, Yuri Gagarin, team of cosmonauts, the first spacewalk, the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova. So Americans went, oh, my God, they're so advanced. They didn't hesitate. They began to throw money into science. Here I am, a foreigner studying in the States. All you had to do was say, oh, I like science. They threw money at It was glorious time uh, to be in the United States. And they just, and then in 1961, Kennedy said, we're going to get people to the moon and back in a decade. At the time they started that, they didn't have a clue how the hell they were going to do it. But they just seized the moment and said, we got to beat the Russians to the moon. Not only are they the only country to get to the moon and back, all of the unexpected spin off there's a magazine that comes out every year called spin off hundreds of technologies nobody anticipated from gps to laptop computers to to cell phones to to ear thermometers and space blankets hundreds of things spun off simply from the decision we got to beat the russians to the moon and that's what climate change represents it's a danger But it's a real opportunity when we say, okay, we've got to get off fossil fuels. Ha! Australia is right there at the epicenter, and Australia's got this enormous opportunity.
2: Now, David, just before we finish, I wanted to touch on the subject closer to your area of genetics. Um, This is something I know you've copped some flack over. I have as well. I think we have similar views that the introduction of genetically modified organisms is perhaps premature in some spaces and i know when i've interviewed people in the past and i've said to them what about the broader impact on the ecology i've often had the answer well that's actually outside of my research what is your position on this because it seems to be in one sense a potential savior of the world's population but it could also be one of the biggest mistakes we we make what's your position on
1: well i i'm a geneticist by training and so uh I'm very, very, I'm blown away by the technology that has been developed. And, uh, you know, I, there people are doing things with DNA now that I never dreamed I would live to see in my lifetime. I mean, high school kids can do experiments that were inconceivable when I got my PhD. So it's um, obviously, it's a very exciting, very, very uh, uh, potential, you know, uh, an area full of potential. But I'm also very aware of how ignorant we remain. When I started in, uh, as an undergraduate, we thought genes were beads on a string. And they were all connected together in chromosomes. And then, whoa, we discovered, no, they're not beads. They're linear arrays. And you can subdivide a gene. So it's a linear structure. So then we thought, the oh, a gene is a coding unit for proteins. And then we found, oh, but it just doesn't turn on and off. There, there are promoters, and there are, are operators, and there are regulators. There are all these other genes that are controlling genes. And then we found, oh, well, it's not just DNA there. There are whole... Areas inserted into the gene that are never read or transcribed, they have to be cut out of the gene. So the gene concept has evolved from a bead on a string to this very, very complex thing, and we're still making discoveries all the time. So I say, look, it's kind of premature. To start uh, uh, using these technologies in light of how ignorant we remain in how they operate. You know, we used to think jumping genes that would jump from one place to another. Oh, that was a very special property on corn plants. And then suddenly we we found genes jump all over the bloody place. Well, I just think that we ought to be a bit more humble. When... DDT was found to kill insects. Paul Miller, who discovered that, won a Nobel Prize in 1948. We thought, wow, this is the greatest thing going. But it was only when eagles began to disappear in the United States that scientists tracked it down, and guess what, it was DDT It was being biomagnified up the food chain. We didn't know there was a phenomenon called biomagnification. Over and over again, we're surprised because we don't know enough now we're talking about the very blueprints of life and are we do we feel confident enough to think we can manipulate them and not have unintended consequences i happen to think it's far too early
2: david suzuki thanks so much for talking to us today on 3R and enjoy your time here in melbourne in
1: australia my pleasure thanks a lot
2: you are listening to 3 Triple I'm Dr Shane It's time for some news, I know we normally do it at the start of the program but we, uh, we had to get Brian Green out of the way early because he was uh, running around some museum up in Brisbane don't know why do that Anyway, uh, Dr Jen, let's start with you You've spent a good seven minutes preparing the story
3: <laughs> Shane, you weren't meant to tell anybody oh, sorry. that
2: What do you got?
3: Well, I thought, you know, having talked about string theory and, you know, the state of the world as we know it, I thought we'd narrow down a bit and talk about our brains because for a long time we thought that we were born with all the brain cells we were ever going to have. But, in fact, we worked out a while ago that's not true at all and certain parts of the brain continue to develop or grow new brain cells, so new neurons through our lives. And most of these new ones appear in the hippocampus, which I think most of our listeners would have heard of. So it's kind of a seahorse-shaped part of the brain very important when it comes to learning new things and in the consolidation of memory from short-term memory to long-term memory so we've known for a while that we do get these new neurons Um, in our brains but for the very first time this week in some news out of the Columbia University Medical Centre in New York, they've been able to actually watch these new brain cells forming and working out what they do. Mm. So a series of pretty nifty little techniques that they had to use and combine which hasn't been done before. One was to put a little tiny, tiny microscope inside a live mouse so inside the brain of a live mouse and also use a technique to make these brand new nerve cells that had just been born effectively just developed to look different to the others so so that they appeared a different color to the others and then they watched the activity of these new cells as the mice did different things so they trained these mice to experience different situations so for example using different combinations of senses so in one situation the mice were listening to low sounds and they could smell for example banana and they could see blue light so they learnt that as one experience Mm -hmm. and then in a different experience perhaps the sounds were higher and the smell might have been lemon and the light was blinking rather than being blue and so these mice learned these as distinct experiences and in different examples learnt to associate them either as being pleasant or unpleasant due to what was you know how they experienced Mm -hmm. it and at the same time they were watching these neurons and these neurons were being used these brand new neurons were being used in the process of learning to distinguish those two different situations to test that further we have a technique where we can turn cells off basically by putting light on them and we've talked about this on the show before so the scientists then turned to those or switched off those new neurons to see what would happen and sure enough the mice could no longer tell the difference between those two situations they lost their learning of Mm. associating the you know distinguishing between these two different situations that's pretty amazing evidence for what how important these new neurons are when it comes to learning Mm. and we know that depression is strongly linked to the um Interruption or impairment of the growth of these new new nerve cells in our brains. And also we know that lots of antidepressants, the way they work, is to stimulate the production of new nerve cells in the hippocampus. You know, the hippocampus is pretty damn important. When somebody is suffering from Alzheimer's, one of the first parts of the brain to show degradation is the hippocampus. So this research I think is pretty amazing, showing exactly how important these new nerve cells are, new neurons are, if we want to learn things.
2: It's a whole different... Way of looking at it too. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, during the break you mentioned this, and and I was not aware that um, anti-depression drugs actually created new neurons. I mean, maybe there's a whole other chess players out there that need to be drug tested. <laughs> Ooh, Especially you, or the Go players because you know they got their butt yeah, whipped yeah, yeah, by computer yeah, during yeah, the week. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, it, but that's that's interesting because it, it it's potentially then a therapeutic for people mm. who have uh, brain damage, uh, you know, from car accidents, whatever else, yeah, um, or, or brain cancers, or, or all the things where damage is done. Exactly, I mean, uh, that, it opens up a whole new range of possibilities. And
3: I think we've been hypothesising for a while that this is what's going on, but to actually be able to visualise it for mm. the that's first time and pinpoint me. and yeah. say these these are the new neurons; there are different colour. To the rest and this is what happens when we switch them off. These yeah. mice that just learnt something no longer know it. It's incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's very very specific to an area mm. of the brain which we've often we've gone through that period where we didn't think that was the case, mm-hmm. and now we're out of that period and we're into a new realm of neuroscience where yeah. you know very specific locations mm. can be identified for certain thoughts and memories and, and the whole It's life. Kind of freaky. It's cool stuff. Cool <laughs> stuff. I, no, freaky is when some of these people tell you that the thought occurred before you had it, and you know that <laughs> stuff. You've heard that stuff yeah, where we have yeah. no free
4: will.
5: Yeah, I love say that. bugger off. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that.
5: <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Dr Ewan, you're up. Dr Shane. Uh, Well, I think David Suzuki has provided a perfect segue for this story and it's about our impact on the environment and potentially a solution as well. So one of the biggest impacts we have on the environment is producing stuff. And stuff, in particular, plastic. Mm. So I'm sure we've all heard about the problem with microplastics, little mm. tiny pieces of yeah. plastic floating through our environment everywhere. Um, and many of you have probably also heard about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. This is a patch of plastic, and it's estimated. It's very difficult to get an estimate because it's sort of on the surface or just below the surface. Big pieces, small pieces of plastic. Anywhere from the size of Texas to two times the size of the continental US. Wow. Floating around in the middle of the Pacific. In so the it's it's of the essentially
4: city. the 51st state.
5: <laughs> yes, exactly. A very plasticky state. But yes, so, a lot yeah, of plastic. Slightly more <laughs> plastic than the other states, <laughs> except of for California. Yeah.
3: In which case, <laughs> it's slightly less. Yeah.
5: <laughs> and, and a plastic in particular that is used a lot um, is PET, which mm. is polyethylene terephthalate, if I've got that correct. And to give you an example, in 2013, we produced 56 million tonnes of this stuff, Jeez. and that's about a quarter of all plastic produced for that year. That was in 2013. Now, only 2.2 million tonnes of that was recycled. So do the maths. A lot mm. of this stuff is going mm. into an environment and staying there for a yep. long, long time. The question is, what do we do about it? You know, how do we get rid of all this plastic? How do we recycle it? So a really interesting story that came out of Science Magazine this week and from Japan and from uh, Shizuki Yoshida and colleagues. And what they found is a really interesting example, I think, of evolution and nature essentially finding a solution for our own problem. So they found this bacteria, which they've named Idionella uh, sakaiensis, which actually consumes PET which is pretty amazing. Now, remember, PET, this plastic, has only been around since about the 1940s. Mm. So you're talking about 70-plus years. And they found this... Uh, by, they're basically digging around in the dirt and some water samples, and they found little tiny pieces of PET with this bacteria on it. And what they've actually found is this bacteria has evolved to consume PET, which is pretty amazing.
2: So it wasn't consuming PET prior to the 1940s. It must have been consuming something else.
5: didn't exist, exactly. Yeah. So they suggest, that, therefore, these things evolved to actually be able to take advantage of this essentially if you like a niche or some resources Mm. that are abundantly available but things just can't break down and so what they've essentially found is that this bacteria has two enzymes which break down uh, PET into its two components and then they actually consume that material which is pretty amazing it
2: it sounds almost too good to be true
5: it does sound uh, too too, 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 good to be true and one of the things I was talking about is that it's just slow so a tiny little piece of let's say your fingernail that might take sort of six weeks at 30 degrees to break down so so what they're talking about now and again kind of a segue with what david was talking about before is genetic engineering mm-hmm. so if you could take um the this bacteria's inf- uh, genetic information or the enzymes and actually engineer these in a way let's think of something like e coli which pro- produces much more rapidly if you could put that into e coli then you could essentially break down huge amounts of plastic much more quickly mm-hmm. so it's pretty exciting stuff i think when you think about the problems we have with plastic yeah. and i think what i find really exciting is that it's a classic example of how we know so little still about our world and we have these tiny little microorganisms that potentially can provide a huge solution to a massive problem
2: yeah look that i mean that stuff i just find it extraordinary that you know that stuff's out there and and also that things evolve so quickly and nature exactly. nature it's, it's back to what we were talking about before you know we yeah. balance you know and nature finds balance yeah. and when hey. we we create imbalance the question is can nature rebalance fast enough yeah. to
5: save our yeah. butts people think that evolution takes millions of years and yeah. often it can be very quick
2: yeah chris
5: kb
4: because P- I, I still believe that um that the when, when you get bacteria that break down plastic this is one bond villain away from the whole world around us falling apart <laughs> 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 and I, I personally welcome our new bacterial overlords <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I, I look i stumbled upon a very cool little story uh and by way of background, um, in the egg industry, the only chickens you want are female ones um, because they're the ones that lay eggs. I'll draw you a diagram later, but trust me on that for now. But the problem is, you know, when, you, when they actually lay, you know, um, eggs to produce new laying chickens, half of them are male and they're useless for laying eggs, and they're pretty close to useless for meat, too, because they're just small, scrawny men. They're no use. The problem is there's no way of telling when you look at an egg what the embryo inside it is, male or female. So you wait till they hatch, and then the male ones get disposed of um, yeah, which is A, wasteful, and B, kind of a bit cruel and wrong, too. Yeah. The problem is, how do you tell what, which is which through a shell? Well, turns out some very clever scientists down at CSIRO's Animal Health Laboratory in Geelong think they've worked this out. They've essentially tagged, as in green fluorescent protein tagged, the male chromosome, and using a bit of laser technology, they can actually cite this inside the shell. So they can look at the eggs and go, yep, you're male, so we're not going to let you hatch and become a wasted bird, but we can use you for other things, for example, possibly vaccines. Mm -hmm. So you're now useful, and the female ones, you can go and be born and produce more eggs, which is what the whole point of view is. Mm. So it cuts Mm. out a big ethical issue. It's an economic imperative. uh, it's just that it's taken a bit of technology to get us there.
2: That's awesome. It, it's it is cool. Cool. Very cool. Although I would say shame on you CSIRO for releasing this prior to the Easter break. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a classic science Easter story, and you've you've jumped the gun. <laughs> yeah, I, I was
4: I was confused as to why it came out because I think glowing Easter eggs uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it sells eggs. itself. Hello, <laughs> yeah.
2: no longer have to paint them.
4: We've painted them for you. Get your black light out and off you go. Oh, and I should mention that if, you, if you're interested in that, there is actually a story on on landline on ABC TV in a. (laughs) Two minutes, apparently, um, on that story. Oh, people won't be able to watch that though, because
2: they'll be listening to Eat It. Oh, that's right. Mm. Oh no, multimedia, multimedia. You know, well, they could podcast one, but not the other. But Eat It's best listened to live. (laughs) That's true. Well, you have to listen to Eat It live because it's a show about food and it's at lunchtime. That's right. And
3: they might be talking about eggs.
2: Yeah, well, they'll be talking about him now, Chris but, K.P. I mean, you know, <laughs> I saw Cam run around before trying to work out what he was going to talk about. I've seen
4: <laughs> the agenda. Sorry, <laughs> guys. <do> something.
2: <laughs> Folks, we're going to have to leave it there because uh, we're almost about to encroach on uh, Cameron Smith's time and uh, Matt Stevens giving me uh, funny looks from the other studio. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo, Dr. Ewan, great to have you in. This is your first show. You didn't stuff it up so you can come back.
5: Yeah, test. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Chris K.P., I wish I could say this same. <laughs> I'm chained to the desk. Oh, boy, we'll get rid of you sooner or later. <laughs> Dr. Jen, thanks so much. Thank you. I'm not going to say anything bad about you because you're always great. I was waiting for the brown nose. There <laughs> well, we go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to us again this week, and we'll be chatting to you again about science next week. Until then, remember, science is everywhere.
0: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne.